0: Welcome to
1: Narrow Way to Broadway, a podcast for people of faith with a passion for the arts. Each
0: episode is designed to foster community for the thespian and non-thespian and the believer and non-believer alike by navigating topics affecting the hearts, minds, and homes
1: of artists everywhere. Thanks for joining What's up? What's up? Narrowway to Broadway. Welcome to today's episode. My name's Philip. I am one of your co-hosts. If you uh, haven't joined us before, today I am so excited um, for you all to hear this episode and this interview and conversation I got to have um, with our guest today. I've been waiting to uh, to have this conversation since we created the podcast, and honestly. Um, you know, this person that we got to sit down with today is a big reason why years and years ago, my freshman year of college, I even had this idea um, to create something that helps Christian artists understand that they aren't alone um, because of the faith of this man. So without further ado, um, I would love to introduce you to my new friend, Christopher Smith. Um, he is the creator of Amazing Grace the Musical. He's a playwright. He um, does all sorts of stuff, so I'm not going to spend too much time trying to explain to you everything that he does, but you're going to hear from him in just a second. So everyone, welcome Chris Smith to the
2: podcast. Hello, everyone. Great to be here.
1: So glad to have you today, Chris. I was uh, telling you, just telling uh, Chris right before we were recording this, that when me and Emma were actually planning on creating the Narrow Way to Broadway podcast, pretty much a year from the day we're recording this right now, that Chris was one of the original people that we had on the list that we wanted you all to hear from. And we're so glad that we were finally able to get some time on the calendar through <laughs> tons and tons of emails and schedules, trying to work, uh, trying to work with schedules, um, that we've we've gotten you here today. And um, you just heard the bio about Chris, but Chris is a producer and a and a playwright and a composer and a lyricist. You name it, he seems to do it. <laughs> there you go. In the theater, yeah. yeah but is, um, you know. Janitor, yep, you know, gotta clean, sweep the floors and, right. and mop the bathrooms every once in a while. Oh, you know it, <laughs> full service. Oh yeah, absolutely, all about the service. But um, how's 2021 been for you so far?
2: Uh, 2021's been exciting. Um, you know, like everyone's been, it's been hard to keep optimistic over uh, 2020. Our amazing Grace Licensing went into a complete hiatus, as everything did. Um, but I feel like God's really blessed the time um, we had two projects we're working on now and uh, they're going they're going great. And I've I've learned so much in 2020, 2021 uh, that I would I wouldn't trade it for the world. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's sad. Everything that's happened, the whole industry has just been, you know, put through the ringer and I know so many people are suffering and so many people are scared. Uh, but in, in my case, my wife, in my case, uh, we really have grown, uh, through this in, entire time. And I'm, you know, I feel like I'm a different person than I was even, you know, five years ago on Broadway, you know?
0: Mm,
1: yeah. Um, so like you were saying, like <laughs> you produced a Broadway musical, which is so, so cool. And we'll get to that pretty soon. Um, but one thing that I this season want to talk about a little bit more with our guest is just how you came to know Jesus. I know we we talk about all sorts of stuff. We talk about things that Jesus is doing in our life that uh, that God's teaching us, but I think a lot of times we kind of forget what brought us to Jesus. And sometimes people have amazing stories and every story is an amazing story of how people come to know Christ, but um I just like to hear what your personal testimony, I guess, is when it comes to how did you decide to start following Christ?
2: Well, I was, I mean, I was a lot like John Newton before I ever heard his name or, you know, cared about things in the spirit. I was 100% going in the opposite direction. I was, I was the kind of guy who would sit down and give you, you know, 10 reasons why God is dead and life is meaningless. So I was, I was great at parties. That was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, all through grade school and and a good bit of high school and uh you know, I was just headed in a downward trajectory, sort of uh, I was isolated i was uh I was sort of the outcast nerdy guy um in fact, I'm a lot like the character I'm writing now for my musical likes is based on me uh in the sense that uh you know, very isolated, feeling misunderstood. And sort of taking that out uh, on myself and on the world. And uh, what actually happened is the youth director from the local church moved in next door. Uh, they, they bought the place as a manse or whatever. And so he was living there. And he, man, he, I was the hardest headed <laughs> prospect he ever witnessed to. And uh, that went on for a long time. And, uh, you know, just kind of banging his head against the wall. And I was very into, I was very scientific. I'm a very skeptical person. I still am a very skeptical person. And God has used that. But at that time, it, it had become a, a barrier to any growth. So I actually, completely independent of him living there, I, I started dating a girl who went to that church. Um, and so she, she was witnessing to me, too. Uh, which is a terrible idea. Don't do that. Uh, missionary dating is just bad. Um, so, uh, you know, but uh, the list of bad things that God uses is long indeed. And, uh, you know, we dated, gosh, we dated for like two years. And um, and at the end of the relationship, um, I think everybody thought I was going to vacate, you know, that I was just kind of that it was a put on. I was just uh, sort of, you know, going through the motions. Uh, but I had actually really come to see the people in the youth group and the people in the leadership uh, in a way that I'd never encountered human beings before. I'd never had real connection in my life. My parents were divorced. Uh, my mom suffered from uh, bipolar disorder, and she was sometimes in a hospital, sometimes. Out and uh, it was just a very lonely existence. And to have people that would love me as I was being a total pain in the butt, as I was, you know, arguing with them uh, or, or just being generally antisocial, was just something I couldn't explain. There, there was no, uh, there was no explanation for it. And for a very skeptical person, scientific person, I had to say, okay, this is, this makes no sense at all. And uh, when I originally started reading the Bible, the reason I did it was to prove them wrong. So I, that's, and that's and I would, my, my first scripture memory was just so I could throw it in people's faces. And, uh, and, but at the end of it, you know, uh, after trying to break them down and break the Bible down, it broke me down. And uh, at the age of 17, I sort of waved the flag and said, "Okay, you know, I've been false uh, my my entire life, and and this is this is what I believe, and this is who I am." And I and I went through a change that has taken my whole life. Um, it it kind of seems like when you get older that your growth curve stops, and it can, it can you, you, your growth cur- curve can stop at any time spiritually. Uh, emotionally, uh, but for me, um, for my wife and I, Alana and I, we really have continued to grow throughout, you know, uh, our entire life together, and you know, almost thirty years of marriage too. So, that's amazing. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> that's such a cool story, and especially knowing this the story of John Newton and Amazing Grace, I can imagine. You know, yeah writing that it was really i don't know probably a very healing experience um or or an experience that helped i'm sure you i guess what I'm trying to say is there was a lot of ways you could relate to um you know that character and the content of that show that may yeah. seem oh, a bit yeah. distant or dated from you know the world we live in now that being said uh let's talk a little bit about amazing grace um I don't want to dwell on it too, too long, but I, I've known the story of John Newton from a young age. It was a part of a, like in my church, we would do, you know, missionary stories, like people of faith stories growing up as a kid. Yeah. And John Newton was one of them that I had heard. And I always thought it was just so, so cool. And then the movie came out Mm -hmm. um, and I saw that and I was like, so cool. Thought it was boring though as a kid. Still, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then, um, I heard that this musical was being created when I was in college, and I was just like, I, I was so excited. And those that are listening to the podcast know how much I like. I don't know. Get attached to a story, and I'm like, that needs to be on stage. Or my friends are like, that—that's like, I want to see that in a theater. And then when I saw that that it was being created, and I had no idea where it was coming from or like what the reason was, I was like, holy, holy cow, this is amazing. So I've like followed it every single step from, you know, you were cool. in Chicago, correct, with the show?
2: Yeah, we sold out in yeah. Chicago. We we had an 1800 seat theater in Chicago. Wow. And uh, we sold out on Halloween weekend. We sold out on Halloween <laughs> night, too. And that's what, oh my really made, that's what really made the Nederlander organization sort of go, whoa, what's, what's going? Because, you know, it's impossible. It's so hard to sell tickets. It's hard to yeah. be a restaurant, and it's hard to be a theater around a holiday like Halloween. Yeah. So once that happened, that, that went, okay, well, wait a minute. This, this is serious. And that was in wow. 2014 and 2015. when We were on Broadway. That's
1: amazing. Well, yeah, I've been following it even up till right now, and you just told me before we started recording that you have some exciting news about the future yeah. of Amazing Grace. But with it at the Museum of the Bible and everything, I've had—I mm-hmm. haven't personally gotten to see the whole show. I've listened to the soundtrack tons of times, cool. um, but um, I haven't actually gotten to see it. But I've gotten a lot of people to go see it, and they have loved um, loved the show. Um, so.
2: Cool well so you know, cool. you get so and, cool. and, and you you'll get to see it because you know we're we're licensing it, so as of easter uh twenty twenty one it is licensable. again, we had to shut that down uh for a while, but you know thats that means that schools community groups um colleges you know can all produce amazing grace and we have a ninety minute wow. version and we have the uh, full length uh, two act version too wow. A lot of that's amazing. for people, some different keys and, you know, uh, stuff like that just to help students, you know.
1: That's amazing. I'm so excited that that's, that that's happening and that people are going to get to hear the story be told behind. You know, I, I had a professor in college one day say, you know, the thing about America and other countries is we really don't have like songs or, or cultural things that everyone knows. Um, like when you go to other countries, there's like songs, you go to a bar and they're all singing that song. Everyone knows that song, but in America, we really don't have that thing. And I, I raised the point in class. I was like, I'd say amazing grace is that song for Americans, um, that everyone knows the words to. And if you don't know the words, you for sure have heard the melody, um, or could even hum the melody yourself, but let's backtrack a little bit. Let's hit, let's hear like, what inspired you to write Amazing Grace? And, um, you know, it was your first musical that you ever wrote, correct? Yeah, well, it's my first
2: one as a professional. So when okay. I was a kid, when I was a teenager, um, I started writing with a friend of mine, Rita Augustine, who, who actually went off to be a screenwriter in Hollywood and still there. We still work together. Um, but uh, she and I started writing just a little knock around musical. We had been in Greece together. Grease the musical, um, so that was my first musical, and I I was a n- baby Christian, and Grease is just the most terrible thing if <laughs> your high school can perform. <laughs> I mean, of all the messages, you know, if, if you don't like who you are, you know, you know, it's just bad. But I was duty, so I had to talk like this. I, I made up this this character. I sounded like Horshack. And um yeah. and everybody laughed and I was like, oh wow, this is this is it, this is what I do. I can I can make people laugh and I can sing and get up there. And then the next year I was Joseph in Joseph and the Imaging Technicolor Dream Coat. And then we started writing the show and it was uh it was fun. It got produced one night at the University of Delaware, but but never made a dime and it never really went anywhere. And I went to theater school for one semester. I went to what was called Allentown College. It's now DeSales University. And okay. uh, I managed to, to be there for one semester and not learn one thing that I would use <laughs> on Broadway. I was in the costume <laughs> shop and I did lighting, which I loved. I loved lighting. I thought lighting was, was really cool. I love the magic of the theater and I love the ambiance. And
0: yep. sometimes
2: I would go and just, I would wait till everybody was going and I'd power up the board again. I just turn on the lights just mm. to kind of, be there, that yeah. kind of red and blue, you know, world that you can create on yeah. the stage. But I left it. I, I it was it was incredibly worldly. And um, I went to my youth pastor and I said, uh, Steve, his name's Steve Shirk. He's pastor now in, in Milton, Pennsylvania. And I said, this place is going to change me more than I want to change it. And he said, well, then get out. And I I had no idea what I was going to do. So I went into a youth ministry program at Eastern University. Uh, And that's what I did. And I left it behind. That was the end of theater for me. And I spent years. I I was a police officer for a time. I was a youth director for a time. And I bounced around a bit. And then what we would do is I do all these kind of wild, you know, different programs, you know, wilderness weekends and, you know, pick up hockey leagues in the parking lot and stuff, just things that weren't really done a whole lot then in churches. Mm -hmm. And one day at a, uh, it was really hot. We were having roller hockey and I went inside to eat my lunch. And I went to the only air conditioned room in the building, which was the library. And I would do this thing. I would go up to the library, It was kids library. But I was always looking for object lessons. I'm always looking for something to get mm-hmm. discussion started because, you know, that's like you go into youth group and you've got 25 kids there that, you know, they're all straight faces. Like, how am I going to, so you had to have a teaser. You had to have something to get the, the blood flowing. So I would walk along the shelves of books and I take my finger. and I would just kind of go and I'd run along the side. And then I would just, without looking, I'd pick a book out at random. And this particular day I picked out a book that said, John Newton, uh, a slave trader uh, freed by God's grace. It didn't say Amazing Grace on it. And I thought, okay, well, I've never heard of this guy. And I hadn't. Mm. So I read, I don't read the forewords to books. I don't, I just don't do that. So I didn't know that he wrote Amazing Grace. So I actually had the the benefit of reading this man's story without knowing what he did or why wow. anyone would care. He was just a regular old guy. <laughs> I' reading this book and I'm like, what the hell? I can't believe I haven't heard of this guy. And uh, and then I get to the end of the book. you know I mean he's this was a man who literally blew the lid off the slave trade because one of the things that that protected slavery and protected the slave trade, were the euphemisms and the excuses and the sort of veneer that British society put over the whole thing to sanitize it? Mm. Well, John yep. Newton was a slave trader, so he yep. knew what it really was, and he basically became one of history's first whistleblowers, mm. and and he stood up and and he was challenged to do so and and. Uh, you know, and this this then led to William Lorberforce and the real the change mm-hmm. that did become the yeah. end of the slave trade. And uh but he stood up and said, This is what slavery really is. I was a slave trader, this is what I did, and this is how I became what I am. And it was all about Christ and all about mm-hmm. salvation and forgiveness and really realizing your unworthiness and uh letting go of the idea that, that you can work your way toward a mm. salvation. So yeah. I read this and I was like, Lord, finished the game, got home. And I said to Alana, I said, I think this is like a musical. I think this is like a Les Mis music. I was really into Les Mis. She had let me hear Les Mis, I don't know, you know, a couple, couple weeks before that. Yeah. And I fell in love with it. And I said, this is it. I mean, you know, this could be because, you know, I think a lot of people would have said, oh, let's do a little church performance or let's take it on the road and, you Mm -hmm. know, do it in nursing homes. And now what? No, I wasn't. that. I was like, this needs to be on Broadway. And she said, well, do it. And I said, why? I I don't know anything about that. You know, and she said, no, you, you wrote, you've written, you know, you wrote in school and I've heard your songs. and I did. I had a band, I had a Christian band and, uh, I had written some prose stuff and some dramatic stuff, but yeah. nothing, nothing that was going to make you go, oh yeah, here's a, bro, you know, but, um, but she challenged me to do it. And I have been. I always told the kids and the youth girl, I was like, don't put God in a box. God's bigger than your box. Mm, so of yeah. course, you know, which, which is a terrible thing, you, you know, whenever you yeah. go and you tell somebody else, you know, something like that. You just know yeah. it's coming back, especially if you're married. Yeah. So, oh yeah. <laughs> and, you know, said, well, maybe your God is too small, you know, I was like, oh, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so I spent uh, 10 years um, not only writing the show uh, in its first form, but also learning how to be a writer and learning what a writer was. And, and it was an on off thing. Sometimes I lost the vision Sometimes yeah. I I thought it was crazy, and I got into other things, and I became a full time police officer for a while, and then got out of that and got into video. But it would come back, and uh, and then once we got to I think it was two thousand seven, it was ready. It was ready to be seen, and uh, I mentioned it to a business owner who was lived in our area. His name's Rich Timmons. And uh, we were, I was teaching him guitar. We were doing like worship guitar things, a little Bible study. And he said, what are you doing today? And I said, oh, I think I'll go write my musical a little. He's like, your musical? What are you talking about? And I said, no, seriously, I'm, I'm writing a musical. It's called Amazing Grace. It's a true story of John Newton. And he said, Amazing Grace is my favorite song in the world. And I said, do you even know how it happened? He didn't. So I sat him down and I ran through, you know, the whole thing and sang the songs and stuff like that. And he said, if you put that in a form that I can take to other people, I will take you to every person I know. Wow. And, and Rich knows everybody because he's a marketing guy. He's all, he also owns an art gallery. So if you're ever in yeah. Doylestown, Pennsylvania, you know, visit Tim's gallery. Anyway, um, he was true to his words. So I spent, uh, about a month making a demo. I had to learn a program. I started using Cubase. I'd never used Cubase before. And I knew nothing about, I can't read music. I still can't read music. And I can't write music. And I, all of my sense of melody and harmony and stuff, that's all just intuitive. And I, so I got myself a cheap keyboard and Cubase. And I spent a month making the original demo for amazing grace which was an overture which had five songs that were themes from the show wow and uh i didn't know how good it was but once it was done it it sounded epic which is how i wanted the show to be and people were really like blown away So we would go and we'd sit people down, we'd go to their living room or we would invite them over to the office. And we would, I'd tell them the story, I'd sing the songs myself, play the demo, and then we'd ask them for, you know, $100,000. And the amazing thing was, uh, it worked. I think we raised $250,000 in the first six months. And we never left, if you drew a circle, 30 minute circle around my house, at the uh-huh. time, we never left that circle. We never went anywhere other than there. Wow. All that money came from there. So it was clear that people understood the need for this and that they were willing to support it. And we we took that and we built, we sort of re-engineered the show. And uh, we got some people who were in Lame Miz. We got Adam Jacobs and Allie Ewald. Yes. And they yep. were, they were. In Lamesh, at the time, they were they were Marius and uh, and Cosette at the time, and they yep. moonlighted for us because we had a connection. Mm-hmm. And they came out and they did a reading for us, and we invited all these producers, and you know, and uh, one producer came, and that producer was Carolyn Copeland, and she she's the producer of Amazing Grace, still is. Wow. And uh, and then we then we went on the Odyssey, you know, we seven year Odyssey. To make the show commercial, commercially viable, which was another, you know, <laughs> lesson <laughs> in humility and oh, um, yes. personal growth. You know, but Gosh. I didn't, I didn't know that, you, that, I didn't know that the industry would frown on somebody writing music lyrics and libretto. When I started, I didn't know you didn't do that, or that it was very <laughs> rare. So I just did it Gosh. because i I was well, I was concerned that this is so outside the Broadway norm. I really thought that they would mm. mess it up i I just couldn't imagine someone under getting it, so yeah. I really held it close to my chest and i and I did it all until eventually Arthur Jerome, who was my mentor, came in as sort of dramaturge co book writer and he came in and said, yes, this is exactly what you need to do. And now you're going to do more of it. So, you, you know, you kind of expect the dramaturg to come and say, well, look, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. And you're just young. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. He was like, no, you're not going far enough. Do this, do that, do it more. And he really encouraged me to put my heart on the page. And he said, you know, it, it's too history channel. It's too much like a documentary. Mm. You're, not, you're not impressing people you know, this is, you know, we have to connect. And mm. he asked me about the story of Alana and my relationship. And I told him, and, and we known each other since high school. Um, we were best friends in high school. And, but we didn't, we didn't date. We weren't dating then. Um, but we really grew together as best friends. And then, you know, at the end of college, then we started dating. And that, you know, made a huge difference. So when you see, it is true that John Newton and Mary Catlett knew each other from childhood. But we don't really get a very accurate picture of it. But mm. when you look at it, when you watch Amazing Grace on stage, really that's informed by my relationship with Alana. That's that's wow. really the, the emotion of it is really all, you know, so, um, you know. Uh, Nothing there to love, you know, this is my song for the one who loved mm-hmm. me when there was nothing there to love. Uh, that's actually me uh wow. singing. Uh and, and it was so and like I say, because my experience was so close to John Newton's, that's why it worked. Um mm. was because, you know, I'd had this journey that I'd been on. Yeah. And uh that's it. And we went to Good Speed Opera House and we did a developmental run there. And uh, Donalyn Hilton, who just was just named artistic director of uh, Goodspeed Opera House. So congratulations to her. Uh, awesome. And uh, Carolyn Copeland put it together there. And then we went to Chicago, 1,800 seats. That wasn't intimidating. Four balconies. Boy, you Oof. walk in, walk on the stage the first time. There's carpenters everywhere. And mm. I, I don't know what tech looks like, what you've seen as tech. But tech on Broadway looks like mission control. I mean oh. they there's tables mm. everywhere and computers and oh, it's yeah. just like holy cow, and I was completely unprepared for this. <laughs> My last theater production in high school, you know. <laughs> and it was just like and just the idea that people would come to me because they they couldn't make any changes without me because mm. uh, the dramatists guild of America is is so great in terms of defending the rights of dramatists uh, you couldn't, you needed the writer to to do anything. Wow. So it was, it was really kind of wild and there was deadlines and pressures and we did a reading one time. Carolyn came to me and she said, it's great. Oh, and this was one where the Niederlanders, the Schubert's and the Jujemsons were all there. And so I was, my knees were knocking together. I I played one of the parts. Yeah, (laughs) I played one of the parts. I I I played Prince Frederick at the time. So I got up there and I did my sort of, you know, nutty professor sort of thing, you know? (laughs) And I did this, well, it it was me and Katie Rose Clark and Josh Young. And Katie Rose Clark was was, uh, Glinda on Broadway at the time. So she was moonlighting then. So I have to go up and I have to deliver my line to her. And I was so petrified. I had an out of body experience because I've suffered chronic <laughs> anxiety since I was a kid. So I was like eight. Mm. I had chronic anxiety. And, you know, I, I actually went to a special school for a time, which is something that sort of informed like my other musical that I'm doing now. But I'm up there and it was really strange. Um Uh, There she is. And I'm delivering my lines. I can hear my voice. I'm doing it. I'm actually speaking. And I can, I have this second dialogue going on in my head. And and it's so surreal that I actually remember saying in my head, Cass, she looks exactly like Katie Rose Clark. And I was like, (sighs) that's really weird. But I mean, I was so, and I finally got to the back. I'm hyperventilating. You know, I feel like I'm going to pass out. And uh, after this, you know, thank God, Carolyn comes to us, me and Gabe Barry, our director, and Arthur Duran. and She says, it's great. It's good. It's, 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 it really works. She says, the only thing I want to do for tomorrow, because we, we had a second reading the next day, she says, what mm-hmm. we need to do is we need to take 20 minutes out of act two mm-hmm. by tomorrow which if you've ever written a play and you've ever had a reading the next day, you know, that yeah. moving 20 minutes from anything is open heart surgery. Oh yeah. <laughs> and you know, so the, and we did, which was kind of humbling for me because I realized that I had 20 minutes of superfluous material in my show, but it worked. And Gabriel Barry really taught me and Arthur too, that, uh, The power of saying less as Mm. you write. The less you tell the audience, the more they become involved. Now, you could confuse, you don't want to confuse them. You know, you've got to ground them on some level. But if you remove certain key information, they will fill it in and think it's their idea. It's really wild. It definitely works, though.
0: Yep.
1: I have, I have so many theories about places like that. I talk about that all the time with people, especially with theme parks and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, You know, it's, it's what you do in the theater. I mean, you tell someone, you say that, Hey, I'm a frog. And then, you know, 40 minutes later, everyone's like, there's like a frog walking around on stage and I completely believe it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. it's, It's, it's wild. And, and so, and we carry that through and, and then, you know, we got to opening night on Broadway. J- uh, wow. J- July 15th 2015. Mm. Wow. We're the only we are the only show that opened in the same month as da 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 Hamilton.
1: Hamilton.
2: Talk about getting I remember the air that. out of the room. My gosh.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. theater were y'all in, in in New York?
2: Uh well, we were at the niederlander we were supposed That's to get right. the Richard Rodgers. They yes. offered us the Richard Rodgers, <laughs> and then something happened. I don't know. It was like so, um, or at least they were talking about the Richard Rodgers. Yeah, and they gave us the Niederlander, and then the Niederlander is off the beaten path, the, and oh, and, yeah. and it's had a reputation as a show killer. Uh, just because there's no foot traffic, there's no rest. Yeah. There's no real restaurants. There's like a Red Lobster there, but it's it's not like 42nd Street. It's on 41st Street. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but we took it because um that's what you do. You know, yep. when the when when you know Nick Scandelia says, Hey, you're going to the Niederlander, you go, Yes, sir, that's what we're doing. Yeah. And then we well, did that's we're gonna be. Yep. But uh and and you know, God bless our investors. Um they really, really hung in there through tough times and we were there for mm. four months and yeah. uh you know and the summer's just brutal in yeah. New York City. It's just ugly. Um, but the, it was Ooh, such yeah. a, it was such a blessing to have thought all this time that, that we could actually portray the moment of salvation on stage. Wow! And I totally believe you could do this. Nobody'd ever done it. I don't know if anybody ever even thought of it. Mm. Um, and I didn't really know how to, but I just had this idea that if I got the shot, I was, I was going to do it. And, and I remember going, sitting on top of the TKTS booth and watching the people in uh, Times Square and just praying for them and just thinking, God, if you give me one day here, we could, we could reach 1,400 people. And this is years wow. before. And it was so great to, because at the end of Amazing Grace on Broadway, well, at the end of Amazing Grace everywhere we go, At the end of the show, people who are from all different places, they don't know which other, they just kind of wandered in. That just happens to be the day they bought tickets. At the end of the show, the experience of John Newton, the experience of repentance that they see is so powerful that everybody stands up without being told, and they all sing Amazing Grace at the end, which nobody would ever, we, we can't find any other show where People just get up and sing, where everybody gets up and sings um, without being told or asked to do so. And it's a powerful, powerful moment. And people are hugging each other after it's just wild. These are hard, these are cynical New Yorkers, you know? (laughs) These are the hardest people in the world. And they're hugging each other. And the the best was the husband that got dragged there. That was always my favorite. Mm. You'd see this guy. And he'd be hunched over, so the show's over, everybody's leaving and getting their coats. And and there's you know this guy, and he's hunched over, and his wife kind of has her hand on his back, and he's crying. This happened several oh. times. Mm. And it was like, wow. And I, I realized in the previews, it's something I tell actors and I tell uh, the students that I talk to, and that is that your audience brings all of their baggage into the seat. It's there. So all of their hopes, all of their fears and challenges and disappointments, they're right there. They brought them. Mm -hmm. And we have this privilege of two and a half hours or, or 90 minutes if you're doing the 90 minute version to connect with these people. The real people, the people that they really are, that nobody can see, you know, they're anonymous as they walk down the street, but when they're in that seat, if you do your job, you can speak right into their soul. Mm. And it's a real honor. uh, And it's also a huge challenge. But, uh, you know, for a guy who never thought he was going to go to the theater again, I think that's a pretty good deal.
1: That is Uh, It is so so cool to get to hear insight on that. Especially, I mean, like I said, I haven't actually seen the show. I've seen like the Broadway World or Playbill, you know, reels online, and I've listened to the soundtrack and I know the story, so I've kind of filled in. I feel like a lot of the blanks in -hmm. my brain of what I assume the musical is um, and what I've heard from other people. But oh, I can't wait! Can't wait to see it. I also want to say, like anyone that's listening to this podcast right now, if you have not listened to the soundtrack or have never heard of this musical um (laughs) you've got the creator right here but i'm saying go listen to it because not only will it it fill you up in in a spiritual way i mean it's it's literal broadway worship music (laughs) in a lot of senses (laughs) but but it's also it if you're (laughs) honestly For the college students, for the professionals working out there, if you're looking for cuts for songs, there are some fantastic 16 bar and 32 bar cuts in this show um, that I bet not many people are singing. um, Where you can honestly connect it to your faith and your own personal story, and yeah, um, so well and so seamlessly. And um, I say that because I've used cuts from the show. Well, good. Yeah, you're the one. No, I'm kidding.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, there's a, there's, yeah, yeah i'm no, the I, one yeah, singing truly alive so
2: yeah at auditions truly yeah. alive yeah true, um. a lot of people i think people <laughs> use truly alive." some people use testimony it depends on how i do uh, love testimony too yeah depends on how upfront you you're going to be uh about your faith um yeah and both you know look um you know amazing grace was very clearly a show about faith uh likes which is the one we're working on now It's just a secular show. It's just a, it's just a show about uh, things we care about. Um, But it's, it's, the faith informs everything I do. I, I would, I wouldn't have any power to do it if I, if it weren't there. So, you know, there would be no gas left in the tank at all otherwise, but for the person sitting in the seats, you know, it's just a, it's just a great night, you know?
1: Yeah, amazing. Well, hopefully more people will get to see it. I think it's such a timely show right now with everything that we're going through in the world. Um, I feel like, you know, it speaks directly to um, you know, a lot of the discussions of racism and um, yeah. you know, discrimination. It speaks directly to that. And you get to see that journey of repentance and realization um so clearly in that show too. So I'm really excited about. Um, the show being available for licensing again and people getting to, you know, hear the story of a time, you know, like we said, this song that literally everyone knows. And I feel like the name Amazing Grace on a marquee is, is going to get people um, to the theater to hear a story that, you know, so many of us need to hear.
2: Yeah, totally. yeah especially now. Yeah. Yeah. I I really hope that there's a healing and a dialogue that comes out mm-hmm. of amazing grace coming to stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and these, in these smaller venues and schools and stuff, the first, the first school, interesting, the first school that performed amazing grace was in Nairobi, Kenya. Wow. And there is a, there is a oh Facebook gosh. video. Um, and this was a while ago. This is this before COVID. And there's a video of the young people from Nairobi talking about what amazing grace means to them it's on Facebook and wow. it is incredible it's just it's just hard to believe you know that something we were doing in New York City uh was touching them there on that level it's really neat i i think i'm not sure if that's on the amazing grace website or not
1: wow that's amazing chris i it's i'm cool. going to go try and find that <laughs> yeah <laughs>
2: for sure yeah I'm ultimately- but-
1: but uh, let's talk some more about your other projects. I know you just said, is
2: Likes what this other thing is called? Yeah, Likes, likes is spelled L-Y-K-Z. That's the working title of, uh, of one of our new shows. And it is really about finding connection in an anonymous digital world. And it really comes out of the phenomena of cyberbullying and you know youth and teen depression. And just sort of this spiral that our culture is in, and we've and I created this world um, which kind of comes out of my experience in a special school. when, when I was in fifth and, uh, fourth and fifth grade, I was in a special ed school for kids you know with emotional disabilities and ADHD and all that kind of stuff. and I got a real insight into the lives of outcasts. And the people that society sort of marginalizes, and I, over the past years, even before Broadway, I really wanted to do something that served those people, and really shined a light on what is happening in our culture and what the lack of connection is doing to people. Um, the the anonymity and the animosity of the online culture is killing people. If it were a war, you know, we, we people would be out there with signs, pro to stop the violence. But it's just something that's sort of accepted. So what we did was, uh, that my wife and I wrote this together. Well, we did the story together. I'm, I'm still doing the music lyrics and libretto. But um, we created this, digital world and basically what we do is when the when the audience will come in eventually um, we're going to sit them down and then we're going to digitize them and we're going to shoot them through a wire and when they come out the other end they're in this completely artificial world which is the world of the bits all our characters are bits and okay. all bits care about is who likes who more and they they do a lot of like parkour and gymnastics and they're they're very athletic and they they just they're always one-upping each other
0: yeah and
2: they have a gauge. everyone has a gauge on their chest and it's just got likes and unlikes. that's all it's got it's got reds Mm. reds and greens you know you do your performance if everybody puts their thumb up you get greens you get likes they put their thumbs down you get reds and it's and it's the foundation of their entire culture, and they never touch they never come close to each other they always keep separate and and what's what we're gonna see is that our main character Clarence of course has all unlikes and he's mm. he's very awkward he you know he speaks haltingly uh he has trouble you know looking at people's faces and reading emotion and if he were human, you might say he was uh had Asperger's or something like that. Mm, but that? he's a brilliant kid. And, uh, and he is going to basically discover what it is that's destroying their culture. And he meets a, a, a female bit named Clara, who is really into science. She's an outcast too, because she likes science, which is mm. just, you know, why would anybody like science when you could do, <laughs> you know, parkour? Parker, and yeah, uh, and these two basically say we're going to go and we're going to discover what is killing our culture, and uh, and we're going to take the audience on that adventure where they're going to they're going to discover that they are in a digital world. They're in a game, and what that means, and what it means to be living in a in a world that is created as opposed to thinking they just sort of exist, and. Um, and they're going to discover how to reestablish the connection that can save uh their culture and it's it's i hope it's a story of triumph over this anonymity and yeah. this this bullying uh self-indulgent uh culture that we live in
1: wow yeah that's so so, so, so cool, because I think what's interesting, especially if you, I mean, that documentary, The Social Dilemma on Netflix yeah. is blowing up. People have been talking about, you know, the social media thing mm-hmm. for a while. And I, like you said, this project isn't necessarily a, a church Christian you know, yeah. play, but mm-hmm. I will harken back to another episode that we have with an actor named Jimmy Nix, who was in Book of Mormon on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was saying, you know, I'm a Christian, therefore the art that I'm creating and I create and put out is Christian art, um, you know, that I get to be a part of. And so I think this kind of totally falls into that. But I think another cool thing about it is, you know, you being a Christian directly creating this, I think when we hear from the church, when it comes to social media, um, or, you know, what's happening on the internet. A lot of times it's like, well, you better delete all those apps off your phone or you need to not be on there. Or if you're using it, you need to be posting so much and, um, just exploding your platform with, you know, content about Jesus. And I see the, I, like, I see the in-between of the two, of the two worlds there. Um, and I've, I mean, I've lived in those places of caring, (laughs) caring, Where I'm posting not stuff about Jesus and caring about the likes way too much, and then I start posting stuff about my faith, and then I start caring even more in a way about, yeah, um, you know, the likes and the things that I'm getting because I'm like, okay, okay, I'm like, oh look, that like Christian influencer person like followed me on, <laughs> on Instagram. It's a trap, cool. yeah. It is. Maybe I can. and I'm like, okay, how can we how can we understand the the good and the bad in in you know. This thing that we have that isn't going anywhere unless there's some kind of apocalypse which might be coming, who knows well, that's
2: <laughs> but, thought. But who knows but, well yeah you um, as you as a pod, running a podcast is you're you're right in the middle of this dilemma because yeah. uh we do need people to, to we our effectiveness is you know in part how well we respond to people's needs and how much really. they enjoy listening and uh whether we're meeting them where they are but it's gotten to the point now especially for young people where uh they don't know how to interact with an actual human um you know and and that's scary and it's scary for them because if there's no way to be psychologically healthy without interacting with human beings And a lot of what we have in in the show is actually based on research, uh, most of it out of Stanford, about emotional regulation and the things that that you can actually do to help yourself through these turbulent emotional times. And and a lot of it comes from the Huberman Lab and other labs there, Mm. where they are really uh, delving deep into what young people what any people could do but particularly young people i wish when i was in fifth and you know sixth and seventh grade i had known any of these things they just didn't look at it that way they just didn't think about uh neurobiology the way we do today but i really want to get it out there and i want it to be in the show and one of the reasons the character of clara is very scientific is because i want to put this science in there and she actually helps teach Clarence how to overcome a lot of what uh or at least deal with a lot of the things that are holding him back
1: so that's so cool Chris I I'm just thinking um as you're talking about that I feel like a lot of shows and a lot of the training that you know I received and I don't think it's wrong say that theater and plays are only meant to you know raise questions exclusively or yeah. don't kind of provoke people to think. But I think your, your idea there of, of creating a piece that activates people, um, that gives people active steps on how to deal, um, and like work through those things that you're talking about. Yeah, I think that's really cool and really unique and something, especially in, you know, shows that are, you know, geared toward more towards, uh, young people. You don't really see a whole often. You see like the lesson and the moral of the story, Aesop's fables kind of thing. You see the of like, how do I actually make that work in my life? Yeah. Um, What can I do? So that's really cool.
2: Yeah. And the key is, you know, of course, obviously the burden is on us to work it in in such a way that it's the character talking. It's not me writing. It's not, you know, we're not saying, hey, this is a good idea. But but literally, she's she's helping a friend. She's looking at a friend who is in pain, and and who is frozen up, and and has so much to give and can't give it because he's he's all locked up and shut down. And she's going to help him. And we never say, "Hey, do this, try this." We just she just does it, and uh, we're really hoping that that will, you know, get into people's minds. It does work. It does. I use it, yeah. so I know it works. Yeah. Uh,
1: gosh, that's so cool, Chris. Well, as, we're, as we kind of wrap things up here, um, the question I like to end every episode with is, what's something that God's been teaching you about recently? I know that's a very loaded <laughs> question. Um, but yeah, what, what has God been speaking to you about or teaching you? Um, wow. Just wow. in your life? How long have you got? Oh, by the
2: way, we do have one other show. Should I talk about? it? Oh, it yeah, go for it.
1: Yeah, talk about it. Talk about it.
2: Okay, I'll just I'll just kind of run it into what we did before, and then the other the other show that we are doing is called Penn. and Penn is the story of the birth of religious liberty in America, and uh, William Penn and the Penn family uh, were a group of Quakers who came to America in the late 1600s, and so many Americans have no idea that. Liberty, the way we understand it, did not come from the ancient Greeks. It did not come from a parliament. It did not come from a boardroom. It came from this guy, William Penn. And it was born in a prison. Uh, He was imprisoned for saying things that the British crown hated. And he looked in the Bible and he thought he saw in there a blueprint for a free and just society. And he pursued that his entire life. He actually wound up, his father was very famous, even an admiral, and the king owed him his kingdom uh, because the, the admiral had rein, reinstated the crown. So William Penn wound up uh, inheriting the colony of Pennsylvania. They gave him Pennsylvania because they didn't wanna pay him. <laughs> they didn't wanna give him the money. Like, take all this forest land. Well, he said, thank you very much. And he did. And when he <laughs> went there, he created a the society and, and the grant of rights that he did uh, was what Thomas Jefferson based the Constitution on. In fact, mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson said that William Penn was the greatest lawgiver of all time. You know, not Moses, not Hammurabi, wow. William Penn. And wow. uh, and we we our entry point into this man's life is through the eyes of his daughter Letitia, who is nicknamed Tish, and uh, and we really get to see her father's legacy sort of the way young people see our founding fathers' legacy,
0: hmm. okay.
2: and she's she's able to misunderstand and. Uh, grow through and 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 sometimes she hates them and sometimes she loves them sometimes she makes excuses for them and sometimes she judges them harshly as only a kid can do with a parent and basically it's a way of looking at our nation and uh sort of the cost of liberty and uh and and how we got here so that's fun and that's in partnership with a new museum called the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center okay cool yes, i've heard about I've heard about that yeah
1: um that is so cool chris um wow you're just writing all this stuff yeah. writing all this stuff about stories that i've you know vague or vaguely on the periphery of of my you know kind of like education i guess um and bringing them to life which is just so cool so 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 cool, cool. um but yeah well let's hop back hop back to that um What's God that loaded? What's God teaching you <laughs> right now? Question.
2: Yeah, I mean, in the past year, well, a little more than a year, actually. I I sort of went through a I to say it was a midlife crisis, but but just a, a doldrum that kind of swirled into a storm. Back, I guess it was I guess it was December of last year, November of last year, and um. Really had to sort of examine a lot about my life, and uh, you know, just taking responsibility for for what I was feeling, where my emotions were going. I've been in a like I say, I've had anxiety, chronic anxiety since I was eight, and it's a lifelong struggle. And so I'm always trying techniques and you know, nutritional things and all kinds of stuff, just trying to get by. So you can imagine what it was like on Broadway, you know, mm-hmm. when I'm writing all three things and I'm raging uh, anxiety condition. But what happened was um, I started to question some of the basics of my faith and my my application of what I believed. And Alana and I sat down at one point and and I we were looking at our relationship and thinking, gosh, you know. Um, are we, are we called to just sort of be this way? Like, should we just keep doing what we're doing? Mm -hmm. And one night I just had this insight. I don't really know where it came from. I realized, you know, that we we were talking about the whole, uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger, Mm -hmm. which is very important if you're married or if you're in a committed relationship, uh, this is critical. But I realized, I was like, wait a minute. When Jesus forgave us, he didn't wait till after we'd done something. He, he forgave us like a couple thousand years before we'd done something. Wow. I thought, wow, what would happen if at the start of the day, uh, you, you looked your spouse in the eye and said, um, I forgive you for any way you could hurt me today or anything you could do I forgive you right now and I thank you for your forgiveness. So we tried it. So and 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 so one of us would say that and the other person would say the same thing back. And then at the end of the day we we bookend it. We'd say I forgive you for anything you did today and you know please forgive me for if I hurt you in any way. What a transformative way of looking at relationships. Because what, what happened after that is we realized how much trying to be defensively covering our mistakes life really is. Mm. But when you've already forgiven the people that you love, when, you, when it's a commitment and not a reaction, all that goes away. You know, so if the other person is in a in a mood or something happened to them or, you know, whatever, um, it's over. It's, it's done. You know, there's no point in hanging on to it you mm-hmm. already forgave her. You already forgave him. So, you know, what's what's the big deal? Besides, you're only going to get to tonight and you're just going to forgive him again. And it really it really made a huge difference in our life together, which made a tremendous difference in my life um because guilt is a it's a huge thing well for a lot of people that have anxiety guilt's a huge thing mm. and remorse and regret because you mm. kind of look at the wreckage that your life has sort of created sometimes um, but it was just like a huge weight and uh and then we we really started judging people based on their intent and not on what they actually did and that, that's another powerful one, too. You, people have to be responsible for their actions. Yeah. But when somebody comes to you, it's kind of like being an anthropologist. They don't speak your language. They don't know yeah. what that word means. You're just like, well, what do you mean by yeah. that? It's like, I, I don't know. What do I mean by that? Because as as much as vanilla and chocolate mean different things to people who love either one, Every Uh word in your language has a history. It has, you know, maybe people that said that to you in anger and now it's a trigger, or, Mm. you know, we don't know how to communicate love or we don't know how to communicate caring. We really have to dig down to intent. What did they want to happen? And once you start seeing people based on what they wanted to do, what they wanted to happen, now, You're getting past the wreckage of, you know, their past, you know, how they're feeling, you know, um, the baggage of whatever, you know, conversations you had the the day before. And you're getting down to the real thing. What do you want? What did you want? I I really just wanted to communicate to you that, you know, I'm I'm feeling lonely. Oh, Mm. you'd never know. You would never know if you didn't ask. So. Yeah. And I, so God's been, been really teaching that to me and, uh, and, and to her too. I needed it more than her. I'll be, I'll be completely honest. This <laughs> is mostly for me. Um, but it, it is a blessing to the whole family and my daughter. I have a nine-year-old daughter. Uh, mm-hmm. I have older, I have older kids too, but, but my no. nine-year-old is, you know, really benefiting from the fact that we're still growing.
0: hmm
1: You know? Gosh. Well, thanks. Gosh, thanks so much, Chris, for everything sure. you've shared with us today. I think I, it's so clear the anointing that that God has put on your life and your story, and I, like the work that is to come. I'm so excited to see, um, you know, what these what doors continue to open up um, for you, and avenues of of work and ideas and um, stories that come to you. Because you've obviously got a really good grasp <laughs> on, um, you know, how to tell stories of people, how to tell people stories well. But yeah, well, Chris, thank you so much for again. Um, we're we're so grateful that you shared your time with us sure. today to talk, and we look forward to you know hearing more about your work and what you're up to in the future.
2: Well, absolutely, and God bless you for what you're doing, and God bless all the artists who are listening. And, uh, you know, getting through this, this rough time and, uh, uh, you know, hang in there. God, God can definitely use you. And uh, I've been on the bench. I've been in the, you know, in the doghouse. And, uh, you know, all it means is it's time for you to prepare to become uh, what you're going to be when you're in the game. You are going to be in the game. And if you, if you forget that, um, you know, give yourself a kick in the butt. Get somebody else to give you a kick in the butt and remind oh. you that, the that, that, you know, we're still playing. We're still playing the game, even when it's hard. Gosh,
1: thanks, Chris. We look forward to hearing from you again sometime. All okay. right. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Narrow Way to Broadway podcast. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe. We release new episodes the first and third Monday of the month. For more information on what we're up to, follow us on Instagram at InWayBWay.